This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The United States, Australia, and the UK have just signed an agreement to provide nuclear submarines to Australia that France had thought it was contracted to deliver. Hailed as a strategic victory in the West's competition with China, the French withdrew their ambassadors from the US and Australia in response. What's happening here? Does this agreement sharpen the antagonisms between China and the US and other Western countries? How serious is the rift with France? What are the long-term consequences of this deal for Europe and the rest of the world? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Today, we discuss the AUK-US agreement with Gareth Evans, former foreign minister of Australia and holder of a number of other ministerial posts uh, in the Australian government as well. He also spent nearly a decade as president and CEO of the International Crisis Group from 2000 to 2009, followed by 10 years as chancellor of the Australian National University. We speak to him today from Melbourne. Thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today, Gareth Evans. My pleasure, John. Great to have you. Thanks so much. So maybe just for starters, this is a bit of a complicated story. Uh, maybe you could just start by explaining for our listeners just what this AUK-US uh, agreement entails. Well, it's basically a technology cooperation agreement. It's not a new treaty, but it does signify a much greater commitment to giving Australia access to high-quality technology, not only these new nuclear power submarines, which is the the focal point of the the current attention, but also a whole lot of other stuff relating to artificial intelligence, cyber security, missile defence capability, and so on. So um, it will further deeply enmesh Australia in its technological dependence on the United States when it comes to this whole security space, which is not something new. Uh, this will be a change of, of in quantum rather than kind, but it is significant, clearly, and it's certainly being painted as such. There's a hell of a lot of hyperbole going around about this in terms of its significance, its implications, what it all means in terms of the uh, the whole sort of anti-China hawk brigade uh, implications, as you say, for France and so on, implications for, for a proliferation for nuclear safety. Every one of these issues is on the table and every one of them has been hyped, basically, I think, in the uh, in the current debate. 
but it is significant and what it will involve basically is Australia making a commitment to to go nuclear propelled which makes a hell of a lot of sense from our own uh, internal logistic defence capability perspective and doing so in cooperation clearly with the United States and the UK which is the only other country to which uh, the US has currently given that made available that uh, nuclear propulsion technology. It will mean tearing up a contract that um, with the France, which involved the supply of 12 diesel-propelled, non-nuclear-propelled uh, boats. Um, there was an option for us to choose the French nuclear-propelled alternative. We could go into, if we like, the, the reasons why that might not have seemed uh, attractive either in the past or now to the Australians. But the truth of the matter is, even though it will take another 18 months of negotiations to bed down uh, before this is sort of finalised, and there's a whole bunch of issues that need to be clarified before that happens, what we do have is a deal on the table, the centrepiece of which is for Australia to acquire eight or more really capable nuclear-powered submarines, plus a whole bunch of other technology um, over the future, which will certainly add a lot to our own capability, which I think any sovereign country is entitled to do, whatever the risk environment, um, it's, it's, a, it's a legitimate position to take. Uh, none of this is going to happen. The submarine stuff is not going to happen for at least a decade um, in terms of the lead time for building and acquiring and training the capability we need domestically. And some people are saying it might not be until even 2040 uh, by the time these things become you know, fully operational. So um, that means we all need to quieten down a bit in terms of the implications of this for the the current strategic environment, the rather volatile environment we're in in East Asia at the moment. And it should be seen, I think, basically as just an exercise in sovereign country, ourselves, Australia, building a defence capability we may need in the foreseeable future. We have been attacked in the past. We were bombed during World War II by the Japanese and our northern approaches. We've got a huge continent to defend and we've got legitimate defence capability needs. But there's a lot of sensitivities about this particular deal, as uh, as your introduction has already acknowledged. Right. So what what explains all the hype? I mean... You know, you've referred to this several times now that a lot of this has been overblown and partially, you know, it may not happen for 20 years. Um, to what do you attribute the hype? Well, there's a, there's a lot of hot button issues here. There's the whole nuclear proliferation issue. Does this signal some kind of intent by a non-nuclear weapon state to start playing games that ultimately might lead to nuclear weapon acquisition. That's something that you know, I'm totally opposed to. And even just to raise that issue obviously generates a lot of emotion. It raises issues clearly about the Australia-US relationship, the extent of the alliance commitment on both sides, but in particular the extent to which it is going to bind Australia inexorably into following the US down every rabbit hole you might want to take us in the future. And there's real questions of sovereign independence here. There's real questions that go to some of the things we've done in the past, Vietnam, Iraq 2003 being the most obvious ones, when there was, you know, frankly, neither international law legitimacy nor moral legitimacy in us joining those particular wars. But we did so, you know, for insurance policy sorts of reasons, because we 
<coughs> we thought the United States wanted us to, or because we wanted the United States to want us to. So that's a hot button issue, particularly in Australia, not so much elsewhere. Um, it's a hot button issue generating a lot of hype at the moment because it has been so obviously and easily painted as part of this whole uh, reaction against Chinese rise, Chinese assertiveness in the region. This, you know, however much I and others paint this as a longer term legitimate decision to build capability to deal with any particular contingency that might arise in the future as any country is entitled to do. Of course, it's being painted and not very well disguised as such by some of our political participants. Of course, it's been painted as an immediate reaction to an immediately perceived anxiety so far as China is concerned. Another dimension of it which has generated some emotion, particularly in Australia, is the fact that the United Kingdom has come back into the picture. It's not just a two-way thing, it's a three-way thing. So here we are getting the old Anglosphere story out and about again. And that's, that's a hot-button nerve in the region. Um, Australia, you know, particularly when I was foreign minister, Labor governments have mightily striven to avoid that characterization of us being obsessed with the Anglosphere. I and others have said on, on multiple occasions that, um, you know, our future lies with our geography, not with our history. It's one thing to be closely linked with the United States because of the United States' power and obviously commitment, economic power as well, commitment to the East Asian region, the role it's played in stabilising the region. But to to have another sort of burst of nostalgia with the United Kingdom uh, is for many people just an emotional bridge too far and uh, certainly generates um, some sense of reaction in our immediate region. What the hell is Australia up to? We thought you guys were serious about being enmeshed with us. So, I mean, that's not a bad collection of reasons, I think, why uh, why a lot of emotion has fed into this. You've got a whole, uh, you know, whole bunch of people who who are invested one side or other of these various debates, who are, are keen to sort of talk them up. I mean, my my basic perspective is it's time for a, it's time to take a breath and just you know look at things one by one, issue by issue in their proper perspective, and take some of the hype out of this. But it's uh, that, that's hard to do in the current environment. Understood. Well, a certain amount of the uh, emotion has certainly come from the French uh, side in all this. And I wonder if you could comment. I mean, the New York Times ran two articles which said, seemed to me, exactly opposite things about the French emotion. Uh, Serge Schmemann, who once was correspondent there, I guess, said, um, that, um, you know, they're upset, but they'll get over it. Whereas Sylvie Kaufmann from Le Monde was much more inclined to take it all very seriously. So I wonder how you see all that. Well, the French reaction has been very strong. Stab in the back terminology, lies terminology, treason terminology, perfidious Albion rides again, the Anglosphere rides again. I mean, it's a very, very strong French reaction. And I do have to say that the Australian handling of this diplomatically has not been a thing of beauty. Uh, the Americans left it, us, left it essentially to us. You, you left it to us to, to manage that relationship. And I don't think we managed it very well. Um, the view was taken uh, that secrecy had to be maintained in terms of uh, putting together the, uh, the AUKUS deal. Um, and that the French simply could not be given any heads up in advance. They just had to be told the very last minute. And obviously that's generated one hell of a negative reaction. Uh, how serious is it all? Look, the contract was in trouble with the French. 
and the, you know both sides knew that it was in trouble and needed some fundamental rethinking and it's silly to pretend otherwise uh, the costs had wildly blown out from 50 billion even you know when we're only just five years down the track of what's a you know 20 30 year project the costs are already blown out uh, from an anticipated 50 billion Australian which is what about 35 or something uh, US to $90 billion, an eye-watering figure, um, already before uh, you know, any boats anywhere near. Uh, delivery, anywhere near delivery. Delivery times have blown out. Uh, endless discussions about um, whether or not the French had fully met their pre-commitments to having a significant Australian component in the, the building of these things, and so on and so on and so on. Uh, fundamental rethinking, of course, going on about whether the whole enterprise was misconceived from the start by buying basically a French nuclear-propelled boat, but on the basis that um, they take out the reactors and put in diesel power and, and, and fit it together in that sort of you know, cobbled-together fashion. So the, the whole contract, you know, and the, the French knew that there was some rethinking going on. And I think under those circumstances, um, we could have been a lot more honest with them in the way the issue was handled. How how much of that um, indignation is, is genuine, how much is is uh, given a little bit of extra momentum by forthcoming you know, French presidential elections and um, all the rest of it. I mean, that, that, that's a matter for judgment. I mean, my, my view is uh, that the French reaction, even though some of it is a little bit over the top, perhaps more than they realistically were, you know, should be doing, um, given the, the background to all of this, uh, my my judgment is that uh, a lot of their a lot of their resentment is very very real indeed that it's not going to play at all well in terms of Australia's aspirations to have um, free trade agreements and so on uh, with the Europeans more generally given the given the dominance the French are now going to have in Europe with Merkel's departure and of course the, the French are significant players in the whole Indo-Pacific region much more than any other European power I mean their French um, their territories in the Pacific their role in the in the the Indian Ocean their relationship with India is long standing it's not very smart uh, from our point of view uh, to burn in one gigantic conflagration, um, you know, the trust and the, the relationship that we had with them. It's going to take a long time to put those pieces together. Right. So there's another country that may have reason to be aggrieved by this development, and it's not mentioned in the uh, any of the agreement itself, and that, of course, is China. Uh, and I wonder what you would say about how China is reacting, uh, how they should react, well, and what what they see, how they see all this. Well, I mean, you, you've got the uh, the full negative blast from the foreign ministry spokesman saying this is uh, utterly unconscionable, and it's um, you've got the the Chinese wolf warrior media, the Global Times, and so on saying this is Australia setting itself up as a as a target in a in a nuclear war. I mean, the the language has been very very tough. My own instinct is that um, you know there's nothing in this that uh, really will phase the the Chinese and will be regarded by them as something beyond any any expectation. They know very well that our security relationship with the United States is strong, unchallengeable, and is going to continue to exist. Um, they know that their own uh, build-up of even more significant military capability um, in recent times, they know perfectly well that their, you know, their overreach, as we would describe it in the South China Sea, has been generating reaction elsewhere. They know that it's, it's necessarily the case that 
all the country, with the establishment of the Quad being another piece of the equation, they know that there's a, there's a lot of thinking going on in the region about the necessity to build stronger defence capability against future contingencies and uh, and stronger cooperation. They know that they've got to expect um, much more significant pushback uh, of visible kind uh, than they've had in the past uh, to some of that, you know, sort of military adventurism. And, you know, they, they'll, they'll take on that on board and won't be particularly spooked by it. Obviously, it's not going to help our presently very fragile and very broken bilateral relationship. Uh, broken, I have to say, not just because of um, you know, Chinese actions, which have been problematic in a whole number of dimensions, ones I've mentioned already, plus, uh, you know, human rights issues, the Uyghurs, Hong Kong and so on, issues about Taiwan. Um, it's also been put at risk, that Australian relationship with China, because of a lot of missteps of our own. I've written about this at some length in the past. We've, we've overdone the hype ourselves uh, about China threats, about foreign interference, about God knows what else. Uh, our language has been impolitic, to say the least. And, um, you know, we've got ourselves into a bit of a hole. And this, this latest AUKUS deal is not going to help us get out of that hole. But at the same time, look, the, the basic relationship with China is going to be for Australia the way it is for many other countries now in the East Asian region. That is to say, our primary security relationship is going to go on being with the United States. Whatever doubts we might have about the degree of commitment to the region of the United States or the degree of commitment to any of us if we get into trouble, that's a separate issue which we can come back to. They know perfectly well, everybody knows perfectly well, there's a whole bunch of countries that have a primary primary security relationship with China and a primary economic relationship. Start again. A primary security relationship with the United States and a primary economic relationship with China. Every, every one of us, country after country after country in the region, has, has China as its major economic commercial partner. And that's, that's just a reality. And uh, we've, we've got to somehow navigate this without, without taking you know, complete sides. And uh, it's going to be hard to do, but we should. But the final point, I think, won't be the final point in our conversation, but for now, the final point to make is, look, the notion that China is a military risk now or in the foreseeable future to any of us in the region is, I think, wildly, wildly overstated. Um, there's nothing in the Chinese psyche or nothing in the Chinese national interest that would remotely want them to wage aggressive war against any other sovereign country in the region now or for the indefinitely foreseeable future. Taiwan's a separate issue. We all know the volatility of that and the absolute need to, to walk on eggshells to stop that one careering out of control. We all know the possibilities of, um, of small, small dust-ups becoming major conflicts because of miscalculation and all the rest of it. But if you are talking about Japan 1930s style waging deliberate war to gain territorial or other you know, acquisitions. Uh, I think, you know, that's just basically nonsense. So um, we, we, we all ought to sort of settle down and, um, and, and drop that anxiety. I mean, American concern about maintaining its primacy, the P words, primacy, predominance, preeminence, that's another story. I mean, China's obviously going to go on resisting that, but militarily resisting it, militarily attacking, America militarily attacking any other country in the region. No, I mean, that's just not remotely in China's interests, and I can't believe that they would deliberately go down that path any time in the indefinitely foreseeable future.
At the same time, I mean, you've mentioned uh, the quad, the quadrilateral security dialogue that uh, has, you know, been in the news lately and highlights, you know, new or, new or at least renewed um, uh, alliances with uh, partners in the region that, you know, seem more or less aimed at China. Uh, but in any case, it all sort of fills out a picture of this, you know, long running, uh, pivot to Asia. And, uh, I wonder how you see the United States, you know, really turning itself, uh, in that direction and what, you know, what are the consequences for Europe? I mean, one thing that I wonder about, what is the UK doing in this particular agreement? Why are they even involved? Uh, but the bigger question is really the, um, you know, the shift to an Asian-centered kind of worldview in Washington. Well, first on the Quad, just briefly, it's not a new formal alliance and it's not yet a fully-fledged security relationship. It's got other dimensions as well. It's heading in that direction, clearly because its participants, not only the US, but Australia, Japan and India, all feel the need to send a signal to China that um, you know, there is some collective resistance to potential overreach by it in East Asia and in the Indian Ocean. It's, it's mainly more than anything else a signalling device and a, you know, a minilateral cooperative exercise of the kind we're going to see a bit more of. Um, in terms of you know the, the US position, I mean clearly, well, clearly the Asian region. Is, is where the, uh, and the East Asian region, the, the Indo-Pacific, if you want to broaden it out, <coughs> is, is, you know, the centerpiece of the, of what's left of the, uh, of the 21st century. We've, we've moved from a Euro-Atlantic centered century to an Indo-Pacific centered century. That doesn't mean the Europeans are, are relegated to, uh, you know, the back stairs of, of history or, or world affairs. Clearly they're very, very significant players. But in terms of, where the opportunities lie economically, where the risks lie in geostrategic terms, all the action, frankly, now is centered in this part of the world. The U.S. has had to recognize that. Um, coming to terms with the implications of all of this for U.S. primacy is very difficult for U.S. policymakers. I mean, none of them is prepared to talk the talk of, co- you know, well, the talk, talk of coexistence, yes, but not, not of equal sort of power sharing. It's so much part of the political psyche in America to have this notion that, you know, we are exceptional, we're number one, we're going to stay number one. Uh, this is you know, incredibly counterproductive, I have to say, for everyone else in the region, and it is something the uh, Americans are going to have to think about. I've often quoted in this respect, if I can just interpolate, a wonderful line I heard from Bill Clinton in a private meeting. Never ever said this publicly in so stark a term. Back in 2002, I think it was, just a couple of years after he left the presidency, when he said, uh, in response to a question in a small gathering, America's got two choices about the way in which we use this great and unrivaled, then unrivaled economic and military power that we have. Choice number one is to use that power to try to stay top dog on the global block in perpetuity. Choice number two, which he obviously preferred, was to use that power to create a world in which we are comfortable living when we are no longer top dog on the global block. I thought that was a pitch-perfect statement from Clinton as to where the American collective political leadership psyche needed to be. 
I know very well from private conversations that there's a vast number of American policymakers do actually understand that, believe that, and believe that the uh, the future in the Asian region with China lies in, in working out a modus vivendi where there's a genuine sort of power sharing rather than an overt primacy. There is a recognition that China wants its place in the sun as a uh, as a global as a participant in global rulemaking, not just being a rule taker. There is a recognition that China China needs its own, wants its own, is entitled to have its own strategic space um, along the, the the whole you know East Asian littoral. Um, these these things are sort of a, a given, but they're not they're not part of the American psyche. And if the American you know pivot now. Uh, to use that word, is given you know, hugely intense uh, focus and there's a massive shift of US resources. It's one thing for that just to be a stabilizing uh, factor in a region which, which still does need the American presence as a counterweight, as a, as a stabilizer. It's one thing if it's that. It's another thing if it's an exercise in asserting indefinitely into the future an absolute primacy and unwillingness to have a, you know, a serious, serious um, coexistence as far Far too much uh, talk, I think, of the um, you know the competitive nature of the relationship, and not enough talk about the necessary cooperative dimension in it. Um, the American government, the Biden administration, does pay um, obvious lip service to the absolute utility of collaborating with China on a whole bunch of global public goods issues, you know, including the big existential ones, climate, pandemics, and I would hope nuclear weapons. But there's still too much focus on the, and, and too much of a domestic constituency in the United States that's applauding that focus on the, the heavy duty competition side of it designed to maintain American supremacy. Um, push that too hard and it's going to end in tears. So I think everybody's got to be very, very careful about the way this, uh, this, this shift, this entirely legitimate historical shift is, is actually handled. Right. Sounds right. So you've mentioned the Biden administration. So perhaps I'll ask a question that somewhat departs from the main subject of our conversation and ask you how you think they're doing on the foreign policy front. I mean, there, there was this kind of sense that they were, you know, it was going to be this great departure from Trumpian uh, America firstism and that sort of thing. And now there's a lot of criticism, in fact, that, uh, in fact, they're continuing uh, to behave in certain ways as the Trump administration did, for example, on the border with Mexico um, and um, in the way that they're, you know, treating um, some of the other issues that they confront. And I wonder, so there's a kind of charge that it's a continuation, in fact, uh, of the Trumpian approach to the world. Oh, on vaccines uh, that, you know, Biden has now, you know, come out and said, well, we're going to export uh, another, more than a billion uh, uh, doses of vaccine. Uh, and take care of the rest of the world, not just ourselves. So how do you see them doing on the foreign policy front and on the credibility front? Well, there's a lot more inherent intelligence and a lot more inherent decency in the Biden administration than anything we experienced with the totally dysfunctional and totally disastrous uh, Trump presidency. Um, you know, let there be no retreat from 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 that. I mean, this is a sea change, and it's a hugely welcome one for Australia, for everyone else around the world. That said, there's a certain obvious continuity in the storyline has become apparent. Um, this America First stuff that you know domestic 
politics, American national interests is going to be absolutely preeminent and completely outweigh at the margin any parallel commitment to what I call good international citizenship, you know, worried about other people's problems in faraway places. Um, we've got to be very careful that um, the U.S. You know, doesn't shift too far in the other direction. But there's a, there's a real concern that it has. Um, the Afghan pullout, the way it was handled, uh, does seem to be as justified in all sorts of ways as, as extricating all of us from that quagmire might have been, as justified as it was. Uh, the handling of it did give rise to a sense that, um, you know, Allies weren't being taken, their interests, their concerns were not being taken particularly seriously, that what would govern this first and last was perceptions of American American self-interest. I've always had that view, I think a robust view, not shared by everyone in, in Australia. That's exactly the way America really always has approached its alliance relationships and always will approach them, that as much as we might think we're buying insurance, buying going to unconscionable wars because America wants us to, as much as we think we're buying insurance, you know, from a century of mateship and da-da-da, as much as we think we've, we've bought insurance from the terms of the ANZUS Treaty, the reality is that it would be utterly naive to think that America is going to be with us spending blood and treasure in our defence in any circumstance where it doesn't also perceive its interests, your interests, as being um, immediately at risk. I mean, that's that's just the reality. That's the way the world works. But um, so let's, let's all be realistic about that, but do recognise that um, there are still some very strong, you know, currents of, of decency running within the American administration. There's plenty of plenty of intelligence <coughs> and plenty of will. I mean, one one of the tests, you know, will be. You might know that I'm I'm one of the architects of the uh, the, the policy of principle, the concept, the norm of responsibility to protect against genocide and other mass atrocity crimes. That um, you know, the notion that there is a, a global responsibility, uh, not only to prevent but to react when Rwanda type or Srebrenica type or Holocaust type, uh, you know, mass atrocity crimes are being perpetrated. Um, I think you know. It'll be a real test of where America is at when the next one of those cases you know, arises, as all too obviously it might well sometime in the not too distant future. And I, I would hope that you know all those voices are, that are saying you know don't let America ever again get into unnecessary wars or bombing for democracy is not a smart thing to do all true, um, I would hope that there's still that residual sense of a good international citizen's uh, responsibility uh, to deal with, you know, totally unconscionable assaults on our on our common humanity. I, I believe there's enough decency there in the American system to deliver on that, but obviously you look at the domestic politics, you look at the Republican Party at the moment, you look at the congressional dysfunctionality, you look at so many of the domestic currents that are running, and it's hard to have total confidence in that. So, uh, the jury's out, I guess, on all of that. Right. Well, we'll have to see how things develop. Obviously, things are complicated in Washington, and part of the reason they're behaving as they are on the on the border, I think, has to do with fear that that's going to undermine their, you know, domestic ambitions and plans. Because um, this is a, an issue on which the Democrats are, of course, vulnerable in American politics. 
So let me say thanks very much for taking the time to be with us. I want to thank Gareth Evans for sharing his insights about the situation unfolding in the aftermath of the AUKUS agreement. I guess we're calling it AUKUS to provide submarines to Australia. Remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Christo Voinoff for his technical assistance and to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song, International Horizons, as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons.